0: Just as it's inconceivable for someone without faith to stand up to Nazis, I mean, it doesn't happen. And I wondered whether maybe one of the reasons I had drifted away is that I hadn't seen with my own eyes the power that comes with faith.
1: Today's First Person guest is journalist Malcolm Gladwell, the author of the new book, David and Goliath. Welcome to this week's conversation, I'm Wayne Shepherd. More about our guest in a few moments, First Person is a weekly program bringing you interviews with people from all walks of life who tell their story. Each one is unique and brings out a different facet of the grace and love of God who provides for us. If you are new to our program, you'll find an online archive of previous interviews which have been stored for your convenience. The place to go is FirstPersonInterview.com. Click on the Listen button for a list of all past programs. Malcolm Gladwell is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and now his latest, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. He often explores deeper questions about ideas, decision-making, and how to define success. His bio is much more extensive, and you can look it up online, but what attracted us to him as a guest on First Person is what happened to his spiritual faith as he wrote this new book. We'll get to that part of the story, but we began by talking about what it was in the story of David and Goliath that piqued his interest.
0: As a child, encountering the Bible for the first time, there are two stories that I was drawn to. That one, and Daniel in the Lion's Den. It, and they're the same, they're similar kinds of stories. They're, they're about someone who seems to be facing overwhelming odds and yet manages to triumph, right? Um, and I guess so they've always been somewhere in, my, in the back of my mind has been a kind of, I've been drawn to, the, to the, that kind of, of um, tale. And as I, what, as I thought about that story more, though, I realized that it must be embedded in a historical context, first of all. And two, that I didn't understand why we kept insisting that David was an underdog. If if he had the Spirit of the Lord in his heart, and then as I learned subsequently, if the sling in his hand is a very devastating weapon, then he doesn't look like an underdog to me anymore, does he? No. Um, and it seems like counterproductive to dwell on his disadvantages, because, you know, why would we underplay the role that, there's a phrase I use in the book called the, um, it's not my own, but I love it so much, the weapons of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Stuff that's in your heart as opposed to the stuff that you're carrying in your hand. Um, And if you look at secular analyses of battles, so this is not from a religious context at all. This is a famous study done by the Pentagon, for example, in the 70s, or of hundreds of wars over the last several hundred years. And their conclusion is that Wars are won for psychological reasons, not strict military reasons. What is in people's hearts is a better determinant of who's going to win than what's in their hand, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's from the Pentagon. That's not from... So here we have David, who's got something in his heart that uh, is really, really powerful. Why would we undercut the value of that by insisting that he's this improbable victor? Um, so that's what I was... That's sort of what got me going on, because this book is really about, in one sense, it's about the weapons of the Spirit, right? The the unexpected power of the things that people carry around in their
1: hearts. Well, it intrigues me. Uh, As a journalist, I don't know too many others who would choose the story of David and Goliath to expound on, but you did, and for those reasons, and I'm, I'm glad you did. It seems that you have a knack for looking at a subject from an angle which is different from the normally accepted point of view about a particular issue and bringing out uh, uh, another viewpoint that's very valuable. Is that, does that describe what you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, that's a nice way of saying what I do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's what like journalists... I mean, you're a journalist. That's, that's, that's our job, though, right? We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to... If all we do is tell people... Um, what they already know, then there's no reason for us to to exist. Our job is to challenge people's um, view of the world. I often, you know, one of the points I've often said is that I'm not trying to uh, persuade people to agree with me. Uh, I, I'm happy when that happens, but I'm happy just when I get people to talk about and to think a subject about subject in a new way, yeah. and to think about it,
1: sure. Well, here's the sentence that just uh, grabbed my attention as I read your book, and uh, this could be the theme sentence of the book in my mind. The powerful are not as powerful as they seem, nor the weak as weak. That really is the entire message of this book, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a—you know, I begin this book with that quote from 1 Samuel 16 when the Lord says to Samuel, you know, that— don't look on someone. Don't look on someone's appearance or their stature; those don't matter. What matters is in your heart. That's the that's the first quotation on the first page of the book, for a reason. Because that's that's what that verse is telling us, right? Mm-hmm. It's, t- it's telling us that outward appearances of power are misleading. Um, they're not what ultimately determine real strength. Yeah. Um, and um, that's the context. That's you're absolutely right. That is the context in which. I want the whole book to be
1: read. Well, the story of David and Goliath frames the entire conversation of the book, but you do far more than just talk about the story. But in telling the story of David and Goliath, you go into great detail, detail as such I've not heard before in discussing Mm -hmm. this in Sunday School or other places, Mm -hmm. but in that detail where you explain, for instance, the power of the sling and how a stone propelled from that sling had great ballistic power, Mm -hmm. but... At the same time, that doesn't take away God's part of this story, does it? No.
0: No, it doesn't, because David was—he was still doing something deeply courageous and audacious. It's important to understand that this notion of two soldiers from two armies meeting and having a duel to resolve the entire conflict was a ritual that a deeply— um, held ritual that had been going on for hundreds of years. And the ritual said, the rules were you had a sword fight. And David violates, he's not just, he, he challenges the existing order, the, a, a pattern of, a way of doing things that had gone on for centuries. I mean, it's, it's a, it takes an enormous amount of courage to do that. And that's where the spirit in his heart mm-hmm. matters. Right? I mean, it was, uh, he had to be able to conceive of this challenge and carry it out um, in the face of overwhelming skepticism and opposition. I remember Saul has to be, Saul only allows him to go forth because he's got no choice. You know, it's a, it's a, so here's this kid who everyone is looking down on who breaks the rules in this really deeply audacious way and then goes up against the giant. I mean, the, the, it, it's important to note that he's not unarmed. He's, you know, he's equipped with a very devastating weapon, but that's, uh, that's by no means the end of, it doesn't resolve the question of his, of uh, his spirit. Yes. And, um, and the role of, of his faith.
1: Well, bringing out the facts uh, that he was not, David was not an underdog, does not diminish God's uh, role in this. It actually enhances yeah. God's role in many
0: ways. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I very much agree with that. Yeah. I mean, the lesson, it's that, that quote from Samuel is, that's the way where, that's the lesson of the, uh, of the it's the way in which that the duel between David and is. I think, ought to be framed. Hmm. It is, don't if you call Goliath the favorite, then you are getting carried away with um, outward appearance. Right. And that quote says, don't get carried away. You right. can't evaluate who's a favorite or underdog based on what they look like.
1: Which is addressed throughout the Bible, actually. Yeah. 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 And we have oversimplified the story, and you're you're bringing us back uh, to the reality. And I, I appreciate that very much about this story. But as I mentioned, the book is about far more than just David and Goliath. Of course, that's the foundation but the stories you tell of courage and of people stepping out in faith. Just share one of those stories briefly, if you don't mind.
0: I have a story about, uh, oh, there's so many to choose from, but, uh, well, I'll I'll quickly touch on two. I have a story about a guy, a man named Emil Freireich, who has the most horrendous childhood you could imagine. Father dies when he's very young. Mm. and He goes on to become a doctor, and he tackles the... He's the guy who cures childhood leukemia and he has an idea about how to do it and everyone around him thinks that he is more than crazy they think his idea think he's torturing the children he's supposed to be curing and he is ostracized and vilified and denounced and cast out and he perseveres and he perseveres because he having survived the childhood he he went through nothing can stop him he it's it's almost as if he's been inoculated against any slings and arrows the world can throw at him. And it's this extraordinary story about how someone suffered in a way that is unimaginable, and what did he draw from that strength? Um, you know, and that's a very deeply biblical theme. I don't need to tell any, any Christian that. Um, but I'm setting, I tell that story because I'm setting, the book ends with the story of... of André Trockmé and uh, these the Huguenots, mm-hmm. dissident Protestants in the mountains of France, yes. who, during the Second World War, defy the Nazis and take in Jewish refugees. And they don't even try to hide it. They, they do tell, it openly.
1: That's the amazing thing. They, yeah.
0: they, they, Jew- they confront German you know, officers and say, we are hiding Jews <laughs> in our town, and you can't have them. You know, and, it's, and they had nothing. They had no weapons. They had no money. They had no. They were just a group of people who believed that their that their belief in God, that their religious faith, gave them strength equal to anything the Nazis could throw at them. And they're right. And you know what's so what's so um, heartbreaking about that story is that there were millions of Christians in France um, armed with the spirit of the Lord who didn't understand how powerful that made them. Who didn't understand that they too could stand up to mighty armies and do things like that? Um, it's a it's a really important lesson about the weapons of the spirit that they are. You know, you can be this little village, and your faith can give you the courage to stand up to some of the most the most uh, some of the greatest evil of the 20th century.
1: How was his faith changed writing this book? We'll talk about that with Malcolm Gladwell coming up today on First Person. Next week, our guest will be a researcher and church planter, Ed Stetzer because I love the church. Again, I get to Hebrews ten twenty four. I get to provoke it to love and good deeds. But I think right now we're in a season where churches are saying, what are we going to do differently? It's a good time to be serving the Lord. He's president of Lifeway Research and a contributing editor for Christianity Today. We'll talk with Ed Stetzer when you join us next time for First Person. My guest today is Malcolm Gladwell, the author of Tipping Point and Blink and Outliers, and now David and Goliath: Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Malcolm, I'm particularly interested in the effect that writing this book had on you. I know there's a story there. I'd like to explore that if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, funny. I had not intended to talk about this part at all. I'm a very sort of private person and. It seemed to me my sort of was something I wanted to kind of keep out of the, but it's sort of come out, and so I've I have started to talk about it. I you know I grew up in a very religious family, and all of my rest of my family has remained very much part of the church, and I had um, drifted away, not never become hostile to it, never just did just had not been actively engaged in. Matters of Faith, and about halfway through this book, I have a chapter in this book where I talk about a woman, a Mennonite woman in Winnipeg, Manitoba, whose daughter is murdered by a horrible sexual predator, and she forgives, she and her husband forgave their daughter's murderer. And there was something about sitting in that woman's garden and listening to her story and realizing that the, the kind of power that her faith gave her and realizing that this was not something that I should turn my back on.
1: It's not humanly possible to
0: forgive like that, is it? No, it's not. Just, it's inconce- just as it's inconceivable for someone without faith to stand up to Nazis, I mean, it doesn't happen. I don't know, there's something about that. I, I, and I wondered whether maybe one of the reasons I had drifted away is that I hadn't seen with my own eyes the power that comes with faith. It had just become an abstraction. Um, anyway, you know, in the, in the strange and providential way that, that things happen in, in this world, uh, I was just, there I was, in, you know, in a little tiny bungalow in Winnipeg on a hot summer day, and I listening to this extraordinary woman talk. Although I say extraordinary, she's not extraordinary, and she'd be the, she'd be the first to say that. She has something extraordinary in her heart. But she's an ordinary person. Just seeing that firsthand, that kind of incredibly moving power of faith um, has just made me, it's pulled me back. You know? um,
1: That's wonderful to hear and a very powerful uh, testimony uh, about the power of forgiveness and all else that you write about in this book. Really, it's the power of faith. And uh, you've rediscovered that. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you talk in the book about something called desirable difficulty, and I want to explore yeah. that theme with you. It's a it's a powerful theme, how our weakness forces us to consider the opportunity that weakness presents and forces us to be creative. Talk about, and you put it in the context of Paul's Thorn in the Flesh, which I thought was interesting.
0: Yeah, the desirable difficulty is um, is... A really, really lovely notion, a very useful notion that's come out of of some contemporary psychological research, which just says there are two kinds of difficulties. There are the difficulties that truly do disable us, um, harm us. And there are difficulties that are extraordinarily useful, on the other hand. There are also a class of desirable difficulties that are uh, ways in which we learn things we would never otherwise have learned, develop skills and strategies we would never have otherwise have have developed. So if you talk to, you know, any time I've conducted in my life many, many interviews with very accomplished people, and it's always fascinating how in explaining their success, they will begin with what went wrong, with the hardship and what the hardship taught them. And that's what they're saying is, the hardships in my life, I understand them as desirable difficulties. They're the kinds of things I'm glad I had. Um, so not I not at the
1: beginning, though.
0: No, no. When you're in the middle of it, you don't always see it. Um, you. It's much later in your life when you look back and you understand that, you know, I have I have a whole chapter on people who are on dyslexics who have done very well, who have accomplished great things. And their childhoods are... Miserable I mean they suffered and struggled, and but later, looking back on their life, men these are the ones I talked to this sort of sample of people who've done who've succeeded. they say I succeeded in not in spite of my dyslexia but because of it, that not being able to do something that central that is to read easily forced me to develop all kinds of other skills. I learned how to communicate effectively, I learned how to uh, uh, form teams of people. I learned how to listen. I learned how to use my memory. I learned, you know, how to read a room. All these sort of things that are crucial for succeeding in life, they were forced to learn because something had been made difficult. And that's, I just think there's a, particularly in a, at a time in our society where, in things like parenting, sometimes I think parents interpret their role as. Their job is to remove every obstacle from the path of their children. And what this is telling us is that's not right. That's, there's a mis- you can go too far. I mean, the parent's job is to remove some obstacles, but not all. That it is, you know, without adversity, uh, there are all kinds of lessons about character and perseverance um, that we never learn. Um, and you see that in the, in the entitled children of wealthy parents sometimes, right? I have a part of that chapter. I sit down with a very, very wealthy man who grew up in very modest circumstances, learned lessons which helped him make his fortune, and now looks at his own children and realizes that his privilege has made it impossible for them to learn those same lessons, right? I know there's a reason why it's harder for a rich man to pass through the eye camel right over there, whatever, whatever see, I was. I always mangle that somehow. <laughs> the a, the, that camel whatever the it is. I have a needle,
1: <laughs> right. Yes, that's right,
0: yes. And I always mix it up. But that's you know, that's not, that's not a, there's, there's a lot of truth in that, you yeah, know? It's, yeah. That's what they're getting at.
1: That's what, yeah. Well, that, what you're talking about really is an example of the kind of upside-down thinking that we get in the Gospels, isn't it?
0: In In doing this book, I... I marvel once again at what an extraordinarily radical document the Bible is. It really is It's a, subver- a radical, subversive to this day piece of wisdom about the world. I mean, it really, it's why I, I I kept coming back to these um, biblical stories because they are there's just so much truth in them. Hmm.
1: Going back to the uh, example of Paul's thorn in the flesh. When Paul asked that God, he asked three times that God would remove it, and each time he said, "My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness." And Paul says, mm-hmm. "So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ can work through me." Yeah, that uh, that that encapsulates it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that that is a, another another quote that I was drawn to. It's it's about I think what's interesting is that. It's an attitude towards uh, adversity and disadvantage that's so crucial. It's an understanding that, one, that these are not... We are not called to be passive in the face of difficulty. That's what's... To me, that's how I read that, that line from Paul. That our job is to look at what we have been given and make the best of it. And to understand... And understanding that... Um, what can look like a bad hand may have all kinds, it may take you 20 years to realize it, may have all kinds of unexpected benefits, but it's up to you not to passively accept what you've been given, right? That's, it's about actively seeking out advantages in, um, in whatever you've been. Um, that's, when I was talking to some of those dyslexics who had achieved extraordinary things in that chapter. That's what they had in common was that refusal to be passive. Just because they had difficulty reading doesn't mean they were going to give up. Hmm. They were going to understand how useful that could be.
1: And all of this stems from what we've relegated to be a Sunday school lesson about David and Goliath.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's much more than that. Hmm. Yeah.
1: When you write a book like this, uh, you've already said that there was a sense of discovery and a reigniting of your faith in this case does that happen with you that theres a sense of discovery as you write uh,
0: in the best of cases yeah that's what you that's what you want from writing to my mind writing is I write for I don't have a kind of external audience in mind when I write I just i I write what I'm interested in I sort of pursue my own um, curiosity because I sort of feel if i'm if it works for me, there's someone out there who it'll also work for. Um, and the greatest moments of doing my job are when um, I feel like a, a curtain has been pulled back on some issue or some topic or some person that I hadn't known about or I had known only in some superficial way about. So it's, it is, that's the payoff when you could have that feeling of... I've discovered think wonderful, it's a, it's a wonderful moment.
1: Well, I mean this in the deepest sense, but God bless you as you write, as a journalist, and uh, in your career. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Malcolm Gladwell's latest book is titled, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. The book has received wide attention and recognition on the New York Times bestseller list and elsewhere but perhaps the most interesting thing for us to note is his return to his family's evangelical faith roots. May he grow in faith as this modern-day thinker continues on that path and trust Christ. If you joined us late and want to hear the entire interview, it's available online at firstpersoninterview.com and also on iTunes as a podcast, firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, our guest will be the president of Lifeway Research, Ed Stetzer from Nashville, Tennessee. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Be sure to join us next week right here for First Person.